G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast in these very strange and disturbing times. Uh, I'm Rowan Connolly here in the studios of Southern FM in Brighton where we usually record this and I usually have a colleague alongside me to do so but of course now given the current situation um, he is ensconced in a studio elsewhere, namely uh, the Fine Studios in inner southeastern Melbourne. As I say, a very good morning to him. Mark Fine, how are you? <laughs> uh, I'm fine, as is all my family, by name and also by nature. We're living at close confines, and I guess uh, I'll speak more about that later on in the program, but boy, it's a changing world and... I guess we have to face the reality that we're all going to need to find ways to entertain ourselves, to stay to, to, to stay as normal as possible in, for at least for the next six months, what will be almost house arrest. So hopefully our podcast uh, being a well, generally more light-hearted hour and a bit, uh, adds to people's normality and for regular listeners is a bit of a break break during the day because we'll all be looking for ways to get through the day. I guarantee you if it's not this week, it'll be next week, the week after and thereafter for what has been promised to be six months. All right, well, first things first, they say that when you work from home, you need to make sure you keep a routine similar to what you would otherwise be doing. So can we establish, are you dressed and are you out of bed? I am both. The main reason I am dressed and out of bed is we were originally going to do this on a video link, and there's no way I'm doing any programming with you with no clothes on. No, no, that's uh, a sentiment with which I wholeheartedly concur. Um, so, yeah, yeah look... look just, uh, just, on, just on a serious matter... Yeah, hang on, um, can, can, yeah, go on. Well, how are you, how are you, how are you health-wise? I, I think... Um, it's probably understood that you've had some issues over recent years. I think you've uh, mentioned them publicly, haven't you, Rowan? Uh, yes. Well, I have a I have an arrhythmia, um, and I've got a defibrillator because of that. And uh, yeah, I've, I've been told by learned medical people that I have to be a bit careful with it. That um, you know, any sort of infection makes me a bit more susceptible, and I'm also in that as you are, in that age group that seems to be not faring too well with this. So, yeah, it's fair to say the reality's hit home in the last week on that score. But um, I, I'm okay at the moment. I, I think the uh, I think the mental toll of, of these, you know, sort of pseudo-house arrest 
things is going to um, be the main difficulty for a lot of people. And I don't, you know, in saying that, I don't dispute the necessity for it. It's obvious and there's no alternative really. But, um, yeah, like if the first week or so is any indication, I'm, I'm going to find it pretty hard hard going. Um, we've got... Uh, <laughs> So am I. Yeah, yeah. We've got a lot to get through, so uh, let's, yeah, let's start by thanking our uh, very generous sponsors. Well, we start off with the great Andrews Hamburgers. What a hamburger that is. It's the, I guess it's the hamburger by which other burgers are now measured in Australia. It's a true Australian burger. It's the measuring anyway. burger. Yeah, that's right. It's not a stick, it's a burger. It, it's... Look, Andrews have been around for 81 years. Uh, you'd think you're doing something right in the burger game. It must have been pretty innovative when they started. I don't know how many burger places there were 81 years ago, but I can tell you, today, if you look at top 10 lists and you go online and fans' favourites and food forums, Andrews Hamburgers, top of most. Why? Rowan, you always describe them, describe their burgers perfectly. Well, it's the uh, soft and yet still firm uh, buns made of the uh, finest Australian wheat, uh, the tender meat patties, uh, d- dripping with uh, juicy goodness. It's the crisp vegetables, lettuce, tomato, onion. Um, you can get a bit of bacon or a bit of pineapple even if you want. And uh, all the toppings you'd like, and uh, just in a, a lovely regular burger size. None of this sort of triple stacked, you know, tofu, lentil, you know, supreme. This is your good old-fashioned burger, and that's what most people want. Andrew's Hamburger is the place to go, finding 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. And whilst people are in Albert Park... They should check out a few houses in the area, and uh, that would inevitably lead them to... Westport Properties. Of course, Nick Spartel's your principal there, the man responsible for um, providing world-class domiciles for the likes of Scott Pendlebury, Tyson Heppel. Now, remember, uh, we're... You're not mentioning Mike Sheen anymore. I was going to get to Mike. Mike Sheen as well. But we're confined to our homes. Why not? Wouldn't it be fantastic to be in a West Point property home built by Nick Spartels and his fantastic team? Too late for that this time around, but you know what? When things free up, make sure that your house is the best house in the street, or the equal best if you're in the street with another West Point property, by contacting contacting West Point Properties, Nick Spartels, your main man. And finally, don't forget Grey's Online. You've still got today, being Monday, and tomorrow to take advantage of their very generous offer, which is $30 off anything in their catalogue to the value of $50 or more by using the following voucher codes, ROCO, R-O-C-O, or FINEY, F-I-N-E-Y. Jump on the Grey's Online catalogue. Everything on there from... $2 $2 bottles of wine to $2 million cranes, everything in between, power tools, white goods, TVs, you name it. Grays Online, take advantage of that special voucher code offer you've got today and tomorrow to get in there. All right, there's our intro. And, and remember, that, that might be, we're getting to the point, that might be the only 
shopping you can do. Certainly, uh, you can still buy your non-essentials online, and who better to do with than Grace? They set the bar on online auctions. Uh, you set the bar on interruptions, and there's two in the first seven minutes. So it augurs well for a very crowded program. Let's get into it. On Footyology, Newsfeed. All right, well, uh, as we all know, no footy to talk about, sadly, but um, there's plenty of footy news, and unfortunately none of it good news, as it can't be in a shocking situation like this. Um, I guess first on the agenda, the potentially thorny issue of um, pay cuts for the players. Uh, I guess there's a... A, a, a good side and a bad side to this. The bad side is that it has to happen. The good side is that, given the extraordinary circumstances, um, the players and the AFL were able to arrive at a resolution. Um, and given the stakes involved, pretty remarkably quickly. So that resolution is that the players are foregoing half their pay until at least the end of May. Uh, and then following that, if the games commence, um, they will uh, be on 50% pay for the rest of a season. And if there are no games after that, it goes down to 30% or 70% pay cut for the rest of the season. So uh, it's pretty dramatic stuff. Uh, apart from that, pension payments uh, being held to the AFLPA being held over. Um, no $4.2 million grant from the AFL to fund the AFLPA this year. Um, they have given them $250,000 to look after mental health, which I think may be very necessary, and uh, another $500,000 uh, to help players deal with any financial hardship. So um, in the end, and, and uh, by the way, yeah, must point this out, Gillan McLaughlin as part of that deal, has agreed to take exactly the same terms on his financial arrangements. So um, a reasonably benevolent gesture from him. Uh, they're threatened to be a, a real Donnybrook about this one, and of course the players are never going to have the public on side if they're seen to be trying to uh, protect already healthy wages. I must admit I had some sympathy for them, more than perhaps a lot of people, but in the end, I think um, everyone emerges as best as they could. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think they've um, done pretty well for themselves, the players. I'm, I don't know, less sympathetic to their cause. I just would have thought if you're not playing football, then you're in exactly the same boat as millions of Australians now who've been forced to take unpaid leave at the best. You know, some people have already lost their jobs. A lot of people have. And a lot of people won't have jobs to go back to. But if you're not working, so, you know, in this case, you're not training at the club, you're not playing. I would understand if they're, they're in a training mode and at the club four or five days a week. But I really would have thought, okay, let's say after May 31st, no football this year, not a cent more. And... Well, they've negotiated a good deal, and I guess we'll find out what the impact on various clubs is when all of this is said and done. But one of the big bills that clubs are going to have to pay is still this 50%, then potentially 30% of a full wage list. And if there's no football, no revenue, then that becomes, for some clubs, a 
uh, a bridge too far. It may be the you know may be the cause of the end, and nobody wants that. Yeah, well, I mean, if that didn't drive home uh, the extent of the issues, um, the game and, and the AFL face, the one for me, I think, that really sort of set me back on my heels was the news that uh, 80% of staff at the AFL and at clubs throughout the competition have been stood down um, until this thing is over, which... Who knows when that's going to be? And, um, you know, we're not just talking about, you know, subsidiary staffers here. We're talking about assistant coaches and um, 80%. Uh, that really shocked me. I mean, did that surprise you? Was that severe? When I, when I first heard that number, yeah, it did shock me. But now when you look at whole businesses closing down, almost whole industries closing down. There's not a waiter working in Melbourne. There's not a barman working in Melbourne. There's not a... Uh, a uh, from nightclub security to... Entire industries have been laid to waste. The We know this. We know this in just following day-to-day what COVID-19 means to the economy, not only of Australia, but to the world, that it's going to be a very different world when we emerge from our... From our caves, the the and again that takes me back to the point of the players receiving thirty percent of wages with no football. These eighty percent plus eighty percent plus at Clubland, it's even greater than eighty percent of employees that have been stood down, stand down without pay. They're taking unpaid leave, so it's it's just another industry that has been torn asunder and one wonders when all is said and done because of the new financial landscape how many of the people that have been stood down will get their jobs back well i i mean i've spoken to quite a few in the past week and i think a lot of them are under no illusions that uh, their jobs are going to be there for them when when it's over. In fact, quite the reverse. I think a lot of them are quite resigned to the fact that that's all over. Um, coaching panels, you know, which in some cases have been up around, you know, a dozen, sort of 14, 16 people. They're going to be basically halved, I think. Um, areas like recruiting, you know, some clubs have got, you know, like up to four, I think, full-time recruit, uh, full-time recruiting staff uh, that that's probably going to go back to one you know um massive changes and of course that that alters the look of the game i mean strangely enough there's a view that in some ways it might be a positive for the game because we we get a less scrutinized less overcoach less overanalyzed so, so, so game. people who believe the game sort of over engineered oh, i think a, yeah i think a lot of people do and i think a lot of people at the afl organization think that as well so um but i mean you don't want those changes to be at the expense of a whole lot of livelihoods do you so um yeah look it, it's certainly that that was the story of all the stories in a footy context emerging from this that was the one that made me go wow you know this is just ground zero sort of stuff i suppose the other one i've noticed um to that end is the renewed after about a good decade or so of not having to put up with this sort of stuff, the renewed stories um, sort of questioning the very survival 
of certain AFL clubs, and they they were starting to spring up again, and certain uh, and I will talk address this later, but certain uh, footy shows, you know, because they're shorter material and need to sound controversial, starting to um, agitate about you know will club A or B or C survive. Um, you know, the AFL has. I'm glad this has happened. They've come out and basically said publicly, you know, we're going to do everything we can to preserve an 18-team competition. Um, and, you know, they've, they've got scope there to give some pretty generous grants. But I guess some clubs, nevertheless, are, are more vulnerable than others. I mean, the best example, obviously, is Gold Coast. Um, the AFL funded them last year alone to the tune of $27.5 million. They have now poured into Gold Coast since 2009 in the developmental stages more than $250 million. That's a lot of money. So, you know, yes, they're vulnerable. B, uh, the other side of the coin is will the AFL ever want to admit defeat on that one and cut their losses? Um so there'll be a lot of people looking at them. Um, Melbourne is a, a one that's interesting, and uh, you know, personally, I doubt that that ever let Melbourne lapse. The name Melbourne is probably too important, but I mean, the, the Demons—they're a club that lost over one and a half million dollars last year, and uh, have you know struggled for membership and uh, have struggled on the field. So they'd want to. You know, when we do play again, want to turn in a better effort than last year. Um, I guess from a developmental point of view, oh, no, I'll get to that one. The, the other clubs that occurred to me on this um, score were North Melbourne, which only a few years ago everyone would have been so, well, they're obviously in trouble. But they are, they are just about debt-free now, which is quite remarkable when you consider back in 2007 when they were trying to shunt them up to the Gold Coast, their debt was approaching $10 million. So they've, they've done a remarkable job to turn that around. Uh, Port Adelaide, you know, despite their geography and uh, history and popularity, I mean, they're, they're still in a deal of strife. I think they're $7 million in debt. And uh, much as I had to say it, finally, your Saints um, last year got a handout from the AFL of $20 million, which was the most um, given to any Victorian club. So uh, not questioning their future, but they're certainly a club that uh, is relying fairly heavily on the AFL. Yeah, well, you know, the clubs that always come to mind when we talk about uh, short-term concerns or whether they have the same long-term survival expectations as one of the big clubs. Uh, you think of St Kilda, North Melbourne, Footscray, Melbourne, I guess, come into the discussion. Port Adelaide have previously received large grants. And, of course, we look at the two expansion clubs, Gold Coast and GWS, and how much they are costing the AFL annually. I do want to say something about St Kilda and North Melbourne, and the Bulldogs, to that extent, look, these clubs have bore the brunt of a very poor stadium deal with Docklands, uh, and Essendon as well, may I add, for almost, um, you know, we're, we're getting on beyond two decades now. Mm. Now, this 
deal that was struck with the stadium, sort of the payout, the payoff for that deal is that the AFL, at the end of the day, get the stadium for a peppercorn price of you know they they basically get the stadium, and that major asset may be sort of a saving grace for the AFL if things get particularly desperate. Now, what I'm saying is that the clubs that play there have absolutely had a skunk deal, you know, almost uh, impossible to make a profit yearly on the deal that was struck, but it was good. It was strong enough to allow the stadium to make money and, in the end, the AFL to basically take over the ownership of said stadium. And that has to be factored in. It has to be understood that that... that cost bore by those clubs that have that as their home base needs to be looked at and sort of spread out amongst all clubs or or factored in when discussing the possible sale of Docklands if it gets to that. It reminds me of the sale of AFL Park Waverley or VFL Park as we used to know it. Um, that was divided evenly amongst the clubs, wasn't it, Rowan? Uh, from memory, you, you, you're pushing my memory. Yeah, now. I think it was. Um, yeah, so, well, so I think Fremantle, who'd been in the competition for five years, did pretty well to get an even share of the sale of that property. In other words, you know, when dividing up assets amongst the clubs, I think it, there needs to be a bit of a, a more accountable. Uh, distribution of funds depending on what various clubs had to do with that asset and how long they'd been parties of that asset being a property of the AFL or etc. I'm just saying that those clubs need to be considered. A final one on, on these matters um, and a symbol of the, the massive ramifications for state league football across the country, not just in Victoria and not to mention suburban leagues, country football, etc. And that was the news that Carlton has been forced to sever ties with the Northern Blues. Um, you know, but just terrible shame. That has been a very successful alignment. And uh, now the Northern Blues, very sadly, have been cut adrift. And um, I don't think it's pushing it to speculate about their very future because um, they they don't have that very significant parent now looking after them and um, you know that could very well be a pointer to the other AFL club aligned VFL teams unfortunately it's very sad so where do Carlton's non-AFL players play on a weekend is Carlton going to field a team in the VFL well I mean that actually that, that that's as ex- that's more expensive I think yeah, well, here's another thing I, I failed to mention that the um, it, it's there seems to be pretty universal agreement that the lists are going to come back severely, perhaps even to as low as thirty five. Um, in which case, you wouldn't need a reserve side, really. I mean, if you factor in that there's at any one time there's probably going to be at least half a dozen players on an injury list. Um, you, you know, you've got a twenty two plus four emergencies. Only leaves you two or three left over. It's catastrophic, isn't it? It is. It is. And, you know, look, it's really sad. I mean, the Northern Blues are a a modern version of what were the Northern Bullants, who were Preston, who were a 
you know, a proud VFA club, and we all know that the VFA, oh, yeah. the VFA days are are long gone. But um, you know, we're, we're seeing some significant football legacies being obliterated or threatened to be wiped out before our eyes, and essentially through a means that no one ever anticipated. You know, we we always talked about if these things happen, it'll be either because of financial mismanagement or uh, the only other one I can think of is uh, globalisation. You know, the the Indigenous game be- becomes swamped under a, a tidal wave of global sports. So in the end, it has been something global, but not sport, a bloody pandemic. It's, uh, you know, the thought of 20% of AFL footballers being cut from lists, I can tell you this, that um, whilst it, it is a very good first move of spending $250,000 or giving $250,000 to the AFLPA for mental health issues, uh, as across all industries, but these young men that had a very bright future, either youngsters or, or players in and around the best players of the AFL, making their careers and their lives, AFL football, putting on hold, study, putting on hold, a trade, putting on hold, other business opportunities. If we're looking at cutting this back to 35, there's going to be a huge human toll here. Yeah, well, well, there is. And, you know, as we've said already, I mean, it's that's simply a... Um a reflection of what's going on in society at large. I mean, there's, you know, entire sectors of the workforce being being wiped out. And, um, you know, I, I don't think in some ways, I mean, fingers crossed we managed to avoid a, a depression, but, um, you know, the, the toll of this in not just economic but human terms is going to be felt for at least, I think, at least, a decade, no matter how quickly uh, the pen, the virus itself is um, eradicated, you know, and that's that's very very sobering to think about. And in in a lot of ways, I think the full extent of the ramifications hasn't hit home for a lot of people. And uh, and I sort of understand that because it's almost too big to to wrap your head around. Um, all right, look, that's we've got to, we've got to get. Big theory here, Rowan. Yeah, well, that's why I was winding up the news segment because there is no good news at the moment. We can, however, muse on uh, life and and love, and I was going to say loss was just another L word, but uh, something starting with L. Lollies. I don't know. Maybe you got one about lollies, but it is time for life, love, and loo paper. Uh, yes, and a uh, bit more of it about those days. Apparently, it is time for life hacks. Life Hacks, Building a Better World. All right, well, how do we make things a little more cheery? Um, Not easy, to be perfectly honest, and I'm probably not going to help here uh, because in in better days you'd actually laugh at this sort of stuff, but it's not, the consequences aren't laughable. Uh, I'm talking about the US, uh, and I'll start on this score with a graph I saw yesterday on Twitter, which was one of those, they're very effective, these graphs. They're sort of, um, what would you call them? Uh, not 3D. Uh, they're, they're 
interactive graphs in the way that they the move the figures move over time and it shows you how quickly or how substantially numbers change over a period of time so uh, what was being measured was the um, number of coronavirus cases across the world and it started the graph started I think uh, quite late it was um, I think mid-February or something and you had, you know, China way out there and, and uh, Iran, I think, was way out there. And then a lot of the Western countries right back, not even sort of on the scale. Uh, and the US, like uh, Kiwi in the 1983 World Cup, finally, just has come with a staggering rush in the past couple of weeks uh, to the point where they are now leading the... Um, uh, the case count and uh, and the death count and incredibly disturbing and I think the full ramifications of uh, Donald Trump's failure to take the bull by the horns so to speak after being first warned about this thing back in January uh, is going to be felt more and more over the next month or so to that end, um, I mean, I, I don't know why we, why, no, I, I'm not surprised by anything he does or says anymore, but I just saw his press conference um, from the other day where he was basically threatening the various state governors with not getting enough assistance unless they were expressed publicly more gratefulness to him for the assistance they'd been rendered, and he singled out uh, I think it was the mayor of, um, or the governor of Michigan, I uh, can't remember her name, and um, one of the other states, might have even been Washington State. But uh, that was, it was during a press briefing, and he basically, well, I, I wrote down the quote, it was, if they don't treat you right, I don't call. So, you know, his response to this whole thing in terms of their pleas for more ventilators and and, uh, you know, various welfare services was to mark them on the score of how grateful they'd been for the government under his stewardship doling out assistance. And that just made me think, I mean, what he actually does see himself as Caligula or some sort of Roman emperor giving a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And that was enough for me to be an item on its own. But then this morning, you know, not an hour ago, there's more. There's a, I think the leading US expert on um, on pandemics or, or doctor has come out and said publicly that um, they expect the death toll to um, to go as high as in the order of two hundred thousand people. And at the very same time, he's saying that Donald Trump is putting out a series of tweets about how many people on TV have been watching his briefings and how popular how popular they are, the most popular show on TV. Three tweets in a row, all about how popular his briefings were in terms of ratings, comparing it to a leading sitcom. I mean, it, it, it's if it wasn't so tragic, you'd just piss yourself laughing. But this guy is a bona fide moron and he's mad. And, and yet it looks like at this stage they're going to elect him again. I, I just cannot believe it, Finey. Uh, interestingly, uh, the actual date now of the elections is being 
I think, thrown up into the air, hasn't it? We They've stopped the Democrat um, pre-selection process. That's been put on hold. So when actually that next election will be is now no longer uh, certain. Look, in terms of culpability and responsibility, I guess we're going to have to wait maybe for history to mark either by nation or internationally who's handled this situation well, who has been caught asleep at the wheel. Without any question of doubt, the first port of call has to be the head of, the, you know, the president of China, Jinping, Xi Jinping, or however you pronounce his name. I don't want to get too political. It's not a field that I enjoy delving into, Rowan. But it seems as though sort of paranoia in China and a continued obsession with appearing to the outside world to be in control of all things, to not be a country that could be torn apart by disease or by disaster has cost the world terribly. And there's no question now that their early denials, their early China's early play with this COVID-19 or novel coronavirus, as it's probably being referred to within the medical industry, is going to cost the globe dearly. And first, for me, first port of call, last port of call. It's not, now it's not about pointing the finger. It's not an exercise in apportioning blame. Every country, every state, every individual needs to do their very best to prevent the spread of this disease. And until it's brought to its knees, either by a, an anti-vaccine or by killing it through denying its transfer person to person, we're going to be locked up in our homes. So we know that the world economy will pay a huge price, but uh, when all is said and done, early inaction at the source has cost this planet, cost the inhabitants of this planet greatly. In fact, interestingly, Rowan, it might not have cost the planet because they are saying that the sort of things that were causing global warming and the uh, actions of man that are bringing the actual planet to its knees are on hold. So maybe the planet might get a chance to breathe a bit and be the beneficiary. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to get a chance to breathe now. What's your first one? I'm, I'm taking a lighter view. I'm, I know you're a serious man, but... When we do venture out of our homes and a lot of people are going straight to the supermarket to try and uh, fill their own pantries at home, think about the Asian grocery. We've had great success there. I know that there's been shortages of things like pasta and rice. Not so at your Asian grocery. Well stocked up, maybe not on traditional Italian pasta, but egg noodles, rice noodles, fantastic array of all those instant noodles. And also some good quality Asian vegetables and I think we're very, very much indebted to our local Asian grocer. So while I might might have been pointing the finger of blame at um, the origins and the sources of COVID-19, likewise, I'm enormously grateful for our local Chinese community and Asian community 
uh, filling our shelves here. So the Asian grocer or the Asian supermarket, I think there's one in most suburbs now, certainly not too hard to find one close to most people, is a great source of food and maybe a little easier shopping than your local supermarket. All right. No, that's a good one. Good idea. And you're right. That was positive. Um, and you've inspired me to check out. Oh, we've got a lot near us, so I probably should check them out. I've just been scared to go out the front door. Um, all right. Next one. This isn't positive, but I'm at least, I think, trying to be empathic. Um, it's about the whole concept of social distancing and um, the difficulty some people are having with that. Um, now, I'm not defending everyone in this situation. I mean, people sort of wantonly flocking to beaches, etc. cetera. Uh, I mean, you know, everyone has heard the message. Uh, it's up to them to heed it. And uh, there was a, a picture that did make me angry in the age the other day and it was a group of, um, I think there was a presumption they were overseas backpackers simply because of the area really, but it was in the, um, it was in the, uh, was it Botanic Gardens? But it was near the shrine anyway and uh, there was a whole group of oh, probably a dozen or so all, you know, within five metres of each other just lying around sunbaking uh, with a huge big uh, neon sign behind them saying, please practice social distancing and um that looked you know i saw that and it it, it made me quite angry and i think it made a, a lot of people angry and i tweeted it as such and a lot of people agreed but um and i'm i'm again i mean it, people are bloody stupid and selfish but i would say this that i think one of the reasons uh yeah i i think there are, obviously there are plenty of people just consciously uh, not complying with these instructions and, and either through selfishness or a, fair, a sort of invincibility of youth, if you like, um, which is what I thought with this picture I saw. But I think in some ways this is just so – What's it's foreign to what we have known our whole lives um, and it is just such a dramatic – change that we we are being asked to make so rapidly and again you know I'm not of course it's necessary I don't dispute that for a moment but I don't think it's overstating it finally to say in our whole lifetime perhaps even a generation generation uh, before us you know anyone who sort of grew up in this country after the second world war there's never been anything that's happened that has required such an immediate and dramatic behavioural change as this, you know, to the point I mean, where... You're spot on. Well, I, I, can't, I, still can't, I still can't quite believe it. You know, I, I still... I'm sitting here now in this studio. You're 15 kilometres away. I'm sitting here with a pair of latex gloves on, you know, so that I can touch all the buttons here in the studio. Um, you know, last night it was the outdoor gatherings of 10 people became two people, you know, like it's it's almost impossible to comprehend. And every morning, literally every morning, I wake up and I have that couple of seconds of blissful ignorance, and then I realise, yep, I've woken up. It's still a pandemic. I still can't do this, 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 or this. And it really is very, very hard to comprehend. 
It's totally unprecedented, Rowan. But because we human beings, and you know, I, I subscribe to theories of us. Well, subscribe to theories of evolution. We we stem from, and we are very social beings. We might not uh, do what our sort of um, animal ancestors did before and pick nits off each other and do grooming, but we get pretty close. And I think of the Second World War and images of people in bunkers, you know, the, the British during those air raids, and people found great solace in flocking together. Yeah. Even though they may be facing the dangers of bombing, they didn't do it on their own. They got together and they sung songs and they, you know, human comfort was derived from closeness. So this is so alien to us as beings, as 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 the human, as an animal, to separate from our fellow man. Normally when things get tough, we look for the comfort and closeness of family and friends and like, you know, our people around us, but we have to stay away from them. And it's very, very difficult because it is so alien to us. Yep. Yep. Now, well, you agree, obviously. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I'm just really struggling to comprehend it. All right. Your next one. Through all of this and, you know, each day now to the point where I think I'm down to zero time spent outside the house, but I must say, even on the road, and certainly when going to the supermarket or the Asian supermarket, people seem a little bit nicer. Now, I don't know what your take on this is, Rowan. I, I, I haven't seen any examples of um, those sort of fights over toilet paper that made YouTube YouTubers around the world gape in disbelief or gawk in disbelief at what was going on down under. But certainly my experience is that people are being courteous, they're being understanding of maybe having to wait a little bit longer and just this sort of nod, this this as people walk past each other at a safe distance in the street, this acknowledgement that we're all on a difficult journey to get together. How have you found people out there? Well, you know, to be perfectly honest, I haven't seen many of them. I, I really have um, heeded the call, and, and the only times I've gone out... I mean, this is the furthest trip I've made from my house for a week. I've been to the supermarkets twice uh, and left it, you know, to a, a sort of later time, so there weren't, you know, as few people as possible around. Um I've been to visit my mum, uh, and that's a that's been. I don't know a lot of people are in this situation. Um, you know, my my mum had her roof damaged by hail, and she had to have her whole roof and house fixed. So for that duration, we managed to get her into respite care, and she went to respite care. And three days later, they locked it down. Um, so I've <laughs> I've had to stand on the street. And my mum, who's on this first floor unit, comes out in the balcony and I basically serenade her. Um, so that was the other time I've been out. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, no, it's been shocking. Yeah, very difficult. Your third observation of life. Um, well, you know, I was going to, I'm 
actually, yeah, no, I'm going to change it. Um, I I think uh, not football, but I think Australia lost one of its very very um, best people last week on Tuesday last week when Jack Jones passed away. Um, Jack, former Essendon player, 175 games, played in three premierships, seven grand finals. Um, But more than that, you know, Jack was, for me, just totally symbolic of that older, decent Australia that we like to see ourselves as. He was the epitome of that, just the most humble, generous, kind, interested um, person you know, I've met a few people in my life that have uh, had as big an impact, to be honest. He's, his story is incredible. And you're talking about a bloke who, into his 90s, he was 95, uh, into his 90s was still taking tour groups around the Essendon Football Club. Uh, totally voluntary, just because he loved the club so much and wanted to share his knowledge of the history and the stories about the club with those people. And I've seen him do the tours, you know, never talked about himself, never talked about the fact that he played alongside John Coleman or, or Dick Reynolds or Bill Hutchison or players of that ilk. Um, he was also someone who spent several years fighting in the Second World War. And I interviewed Jack before Anzac Day in 2011. And I, he, the, story, the way he described his war experiences was... I don't know, it's sort of impacted on me more than any other recounting of those stories I've heard. Not Because they, they were real, they were, they were brutal and, and shocking. I mean, he talked about, you know, mates he lost standing next to him who just happened to be shot standing next to him. You know, they, they got the short end of a straw and he got lucky. Um, those that died of malaria, those that took their lives... Um, on a ship, you know, because they couldn't face going back to the the front line. Um, and his whole view of the war and war in general was very sort of anti-war. You know, it wasn't a glorified. It was, you know, he, I remember he said very passionately, "No one wins a bloody war." Um, he was sort of reticent to go back to Japan, which he did in the end because. Not because he bore the Japanese any malice, but because he was worried he would see the grandchildren of people he had killed. Um, he he was just a, a beautiful person, Jack. Um, you know, if you didn't know him, he was the grandfather of Sarah Jones from Fox Footy. Uh, I exchanged a short message with Sarah, and his family are rightly devastated because because of what's going on. He's not even going to be able to have a, a decent funeral. Uh, and I can't think of many people in this country who deserve a, a bigger and better send-off than Jack Jones. But, you know, really one of the best, most decent people I've ever met in my life. And um, Valet Jack, you know, you're an absolute legend. And uh, we're all going to miss you. Lovely tribute there, Rowan. Lovely. All right, you're up. Yeah, so my final uh, life hack is... I think everybody's experiencing this, and I know that um, you might touch on it too, Rowan, is living at close quarters with your family isn't 
necessarily something that we're used to. And I now know why there are no mixed prisons, by the way. See, I used to think it was because of fraternisation. You cannot put a man and a woman in a cell together. I've worked that out. So within the confines of the house, flat, whatever your domicile situation is, there needs to be separation. And after a week, I think um, the leader of the opposition and myself are going to have to sit down and just work out some private time and private spaces for ourselves because even after, Rowan, even after 24 years of marriage, uh, we're, we're scrapping over the same bit of meat to use to use dog trainer parlance and um, we're going to have to find our own spaces and ways of uh, not getting into any other's way. Yeah. Does that ring true at all? Uh, yes, it does, and I think a lot of people probably silently nodding their heads in agreement at the moment. Certainly been a different week in our house. Abby's had to work from home all week. Um, Sam, my stepson, has been home all week. David had school finish up early, so he was home all week. Uh, and you do get used to routine, and you do get used to, in my case, um, having the run of the house to myself at least during the day, and I've I found that a bit difficult. And I think likewise, Abby's yeah, found I think, it. Same with me. Yeah, it makes me think that I might be the problem. Oh, well, I'm I'm told I'm the problem, and uh, I probably am. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of different stuff going on, and a lot of um, it takes a lot of getting used to. And uh, in better times, we'd be able to go out and have a coffee together and have a nice chat and sort of. You know, get the ground rules right and get on a, an even keel, but uh, can't do that. And um, yeah, getting back to my point earlier about mental health. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to get out and go for a walk or something today because I am dead set going to go mad. I can tell you one thing I've done actually. I only touch on this very quickly, but I've decided to embrace the video age finding, and I've actually been doing on Twitter a countdown of my top 20 albums of all time. So if you're not a Twitter regular, um, check it out. It's been a lot of fun, actually. Having a lot of fun playing this new video editing software I have. So that's, oh, that's kept... Good. That's, that's kept... Yeah, no, it's, it's been fun. That's kept me occupied. But um, I need I do need a bit more fresh air than I'm getting, I think. I, I do have one for our uh, podcast fans, and I think given our sensibilities, it might be something that they, they too would like. I've gone online, just to, you know, through Google searches and then onto YouTube, to the National Film and Sound Archive. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of good stuff there, including sport. So if you like history and the history of Australia brought to life in audio and video form, and you go to NFSA gov.au and it's good fun. Oh, good. Yeah, no, I remember that. I mean, well, archival stuff is doing pretty well at the moment, which I'm going to touch on uh, shortly in another segment. Speaking of which, that's enough life hacks for this week. Uh, I think it's time, finally, that we uh, step back in time and revisited some of the uh, best music, movies, TV and football nostalgia of yesteryear. Video. 
vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Okay, love this segment. So do a lot of people, Finey. It was my choice of year. And perhaps strangely, given the um, the football side of things, as some people might think, I have picked 1990. Um, how do you feel about that year off the top of your head? Good, but in certain categories, uh, very thin. I'll be interested to see where you go in music because I think you might have had a fair bit to choose from and it was a barren desert for myself until I found something that actually I really love. Oh, okay. All right. Well, to that end, uh, you're right. I had uh, not necessarily... There's been other years with more good choices, but... Um, I had a shocking uh, dilemma which of three albums to choose from. Now, just to fill you in, we had in 1990 such things as uh, Ghost Nation, released by Hunters and Collectors, Jane's Addiction, released their uh, seminal Ritual Delo Habitual album, uh, Fagazi, another favourite band of mine, came out with Repeater, uh, The Oils, Blue Sky Mining, that was a big album, Akadaka, Razor's Edge, uh, some argument that that might be their last decent album. Uh, the three I really struggled with, Finey. It was so hard to separate them. Two by Australian bands, I'm pleased to say. One by The Church, Gold Afternoon Fix, which is an album they actually don't like very much, but uh, I do. I think it's great. It's got um, uh, Metropolis, You're Still Beautiful. Uh, they were the singles off it, so they're the ones people might remember. And the other one that uh, I desperately wanted to pick but in the end just got shaded was by The Angels, Beyond Salvation, which was a bit of a comeback album for them almost. They hadn't released an album for four years. And if you like, you know, classic Angels, real riffy guitar, uh, they never sound better than on this album. It's so well produced. Um, Produced the hit singles, Let the Night Roll On and Dogs Are Talking. Great album, Beyond Salvation. But uh, I have gone with one of my favourite bands, their debut, Finey, Alice in Chains and Facelift, which I've actually talked about in my Top 20 Albums video series on Twitter. Uh, I love Alice in Chains, a very dark Seattle band, um, racked by uh, the uh, drug abuse of, well, it stages... All members, but uh, unfortunately ended up costing Wayne Staley, lead singer, his life. Uh, but he, Jerry Cantrell, Mike Starr and Sean Kinney got a wonderful uh, groove happening and it really kicked off on this debut. It's a fantastic debut. Uh, produced the hit single Man in the Box, which was actually nominated for a Grammy. Uh, other great songs, We Die Young, Sea of Sorrow, Confusion and Real Thing. Um, they got heavier and, and darker than this on Dirt, their follow-up album, which a lot of people consider their best. But I just prefer this one slightly. It's a little less gloomy, uh, a little more accessible in a commercial rock sense. And uh, it, it just rocks. Great vocals. Uh, the harmonies of Lane Staley and Jerry Cantrell are terrific. And uh, it sort of encompasses everything I love about rock music. So facelift. Alice in Chains is my music. What's yours? Well, you know how I sort of proudly lay claim to having a broad church in terms of my music loves? You do. 
I'm going. I'm taking you somewhere where I bet you didn't think I'd take you. Uh, classical. Correct. Oh, okay. There you go. So, what was it? So what, what did Beethoven produce in 1990? <laughs> the Three Tenors Live. Oh, yeah. Who sung famously at an outdoor, beautiful outdoor amphitheatre type setting uh, in Rome the night before the World Cup final. And it gave us the most famous and so popular was it that it reached number two on the UK singles charts for all music, rendition of Nessun Dorma by the great Luciano Pavarotti. Um, but the three tenors, of course, um, Carreras, Placido Domingo, and the great Luciano Pavarotti sung out, knocked out a few of the old favourites, Granada, Ossolomia, um, a song from uh, Ipagliacci. I don't know if these mean anything to you, Rowan. No, no. Well, I was going to ask you, is it? I mean, I'm shockingly ignorant about this stuff. What's the main one again? Nessa. Nessun Dorma. What's that you from? Know, that's a great song. With that's from um, an opera, isn't it? Yeah, it's from Turandot. Ah, that's it. Yeah. And it's sung. It's it, it appears twice on the album actually. So there is an album, The Three Tenors Live. Oh, there's a twelve-inch so scratch all mix. To do with their involvement. It's all to do with their involvement in the 1990 World Cup. Yeah, no, I remember it was tied up with the World Cup. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, this incredible rendition. First of all, the three tenors in Nessun Dorma, but, but it is the individual's performance, Luciano Pavarotti, Nessun Dorma, uh, you know, with the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, as it builds up to his enormous blast of, of tenor power. Of course, no attempt to sing as here or even, you know, any renditions of. Yeah, but no, I don't. I think most people can uh, place place the um, in their mind's eye can see him with the two the other tenors uh, singing that famous song out in that famous outdoor setting, and it was the night before the World Cup final. Yeah, no, good call. I like that. I like that. It's different. It's bold. It's innovative. Um, all right, let's move on to movies now. Uh, what a you got to say, 1990 was a, a pretty good year for movies by any measure. Now, uh, here uh, is a selection of some that neither of us have picked. Edward Scissorhands, Home Alone, Dances with Wolves, Misery, great movie, Total Recall, Pretty Woman, Back to the Future 3, Godfather 3, Ghost, Days of Thunder, Presumed Innocent. That's a pretty big list. I mean, look, don't get me wrong, I don't like it all of them. includes some of my most hated movies, that list. Yeah, no, I was, gonna, I was just about to say, I don't like them all, but they were big. Uh, however... Oh, they were big. However, well, I have which gone... Which one of those do you hate the most? Uh, out of them, uh, Pretty Woman. Um, yeah, that's probably in the top three. Uh, Days of Thunder. That's number two. And I think your number one uh, will either be Home Alone or Ghost. It's Ghost. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't. Yeah. And no. in, fact, in fact, in the week just enjoyed with my wife, uh, there's been a lot of suggestions of movies that we watch and videos that the kids called in for voting, and Ghost was mentioned. Oh, yeah. 
got fairly sore shrift from me, I can tell you. Is that a bit of a chick flick, you reckon? A bit of a chick flick. I, t- I tell you what, on on that theme, I think my absolute worst movie of all time is another one that uh, tends to be a bit of a, a, a chick flick, uh, An Officer and a Gentleman. Oh, God, I loathe that I hate movie. them all. Yeah, no, they're shocking. All right. No, no, the one I don't like is, um, oh, with that constantly, she's always pulling faces as though she's short-sighted. Zellweger. Bridget Jones. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, diary Bridget Don- Jones. Yeah, uh, Bridget yeah. Jones' yeah, diary. She, is that her cute look where she sort of squints and, and makes it look like she's forgotten her contact lens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. First uh, practice by, I think, Elaine May in um, with Walter Matthau in A New Leaf. I don't know why I just saw oh, that. Speaking of actresses, did you did you hear about the stabbing of that actress? What's her name, Reese? Um... Witherspoon. No, it was with a knife, actually. She got stabbed. You didn't hear the joke, mate. You said with a spoon, and I said with a knife. Oh, sorry. Sorry. It's hard when you're 15 kilometres away. <laughs> well, in some ways, it's hard. Um, <laughs> all right, now, my, you like it. my most stop interrupting me, my movie. I'm going yep. with, you heard me mention Godfather 3. Well, there was another film of the gangster ilk, but. Um, blasphemous though it may be to say this, I think this is one instalment of The Godfather which didn't quite measure up to the others and was exceeded on the gangster movie front by this one. A terrific film. I'm speaking of Goodfellas, uh, directed by Martin Scorsese, starring the peerless Robert De Niro as uh, crimester James Conway, Great role, um, great performance from Ray Liotta as Henry Hill. Uh, Joe, Pe- is it Pesci or Pesky? Pesci. Pesci. Pesci playing Tommy DeVito. Surely a play on Danny DeVito. Uh, Lorraine Bracco as uh, the love interest and Paul Sorvino as uh, crime patriarch Paulie, what is it, uh, Chero, I think. Um uh, there's no no great sort of uh, twists or anything. It's about a young guy, Henry Hill, played by Ray Liotta, who grows up idolising gangsters in his uh, Brooklyn neighbourhood and becomes involved with them doing sort of menial tasks and, and things at a very young age. And then uh, as he gets older, rises up through the ranks and, um, of course, becomes intos- intoxicated by the the money and the power and the evil, and uh, then, uh, like a lot of those things, gets involved in the drug scene and um, becomes a complete uh, sort of, I was going to say crackhead, but coke fiend, I guess. Um, Ends up uh, in all sorts of trouble, gets bailed out, and then there's a, a double crossing. Uh, but, you know, great actors... Um, Great performances. It was nominated for six Oscars. I think it only won one, actually, and that might have been Pesci as um, Best Supporting Actor. But I thought Ray Liotta was terrific in this. And uh, what I like about it, it's sort of like, um, in retrospect, it sort of feels to me like a, a Tarantino film, but a lot more structured. Because to be honest, I find Tarantino a bit annoying. I often feel like it's sort of style over substance 
And this film, I think, has a great story arc and is really well structured and um, everything about it sort of stands up. But it has that snappiness, that sort of pacey, contemporary feel of a Tarantino film, if that makes sense. So it's sort of like the best of of both worlds. Um, very critically acclaimed. Um, a lot of people think it's one of the, the, the best of all gangster films. Um, certainly right up there for me. Goodfellas. Martin Scorsese, your choice. Great choice. And this one dovetails nicely into this discussion because critics, and there are many critics, who consider this one of the finest gangster movies of all time. But timing is everything. And fortunately, this didn't mark uh, the death knell for my favourite directors or directed as you know I'm a huge fan of Coen Brother movies yep. and in 1990 they released a movie that was their first big budget movie so they had had successes with sort of off Broadway type movies such as Barton Fink Hudsucker Proxy but that I think predates this I've got to check that but certainly Barton Fink and Raising Arizona Oh yeah, yeah. Raising Arizona was good. Poured into their first. This was their first big budget piece. It was a gangster movie called Miller's Crossing. Mm. And as I said, timing is everything, and it was released the very weekend the Goodfellas was released. Of course, with the big, as you've already mentioned, headliner cast, there was no matching it. And even though it cost around twelve million US to make, it only took five million at the box office. Oh wow! And the Cohen brothers were in trouble. We know that they fought back brilliantly thereafter. This is a great movie. True Cohen brothers, very conscious of language of the time. So the dialogue is magnificent. It's set in a not specific US city. Could be Chicago, could be New York. That's not important. It's the story of um, Tom Reagan, who is aligned with an Irish gangster by the name of Liam O'Bannon, or Leo, and he's his sort of right-hand man, trusted lieutenant. And because of a love interest that he has, there's a conflict of interest and an opportunity for Leo's opponent, Johnny Casper, the Italian gangster from that town, to recruit Tom Reagan. And it's how Tom Reagan plays side against side, all the while actually being loyal to... Liam O'Bannon, but uh, he's not always obviously so. The love interest is played by Marcia Gay Harden. Uh, the movie is almost stolen by her brother. She's Werner Birnbaum, uh, and her brother is a, a conniving, whining troublemaker by the name of Bernie Birnbaum. And Miller's Crossing refers to a place where you take people to execute them. And Tom Reagan takes Bernie Birnbaum there for just such treatment, but lets him go. And what ensues is the complexities of the movie, the cross, the double cross. Sure. An example of how the movie runs. Bernie Birnbaum, even though he pled for his life in this forest and was given a reprieve most unusual, rather than doing what he promised to do, and that is go away and never be seen in that town again, uh, Tom Reagan turns up at his house, one, he goes home one night, and who's sitting there but Bernie Birnbaum, or as he's known, the Schmutter. 
and he says, you know, I figure that me being in town is bad for me, but it's also bad for you, Tommy, which gives me an advantage. So I've got a bit of a play here. And he goes through the things that he wants done in return for not surfacing, because if he surfaces, Tommy Regan gets killed for sure. And his last line as he walks out of, cockily walks out of Tom Regan's apartment, he says, I want these things done, and I want them done within 48 hours. If not, I start eating in restaurants. <laughs> and that's the sort of double cross that the movie's famous for. It's a great movie with a great supporting cast. Well worth seeing. Yeah, look, I must admit, I, I have seen it, but I, I only watched it the once and around the time it came out. So it's been 30-odd years since I saw it, and unfortunately it's one of those films I remember I liked, but I can't remember why. So yeah, maybe and, I'll and revisit it. Great, there's a brilliant scene where um, Leo O'Bannon is... They go to exit, they go to, they go to kill him. The, the Italian go to kill the Irish boss, but they fail, and it's all done to them to the haunting sounds of Danny Boy, and it's very powerful, very good. Just one question. Did uh, Bernie Birnbaum's character provide the inspiration for Bob Loblaw in um, Arrested Development? No, no, the smutter is his own character, believe me. Okay, you're an Arrested great, Development great fan, are you? Great You there? I am there. I was, yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for you to respond. I thought you were an Arrested Development fan. No, I love Bob Loblaw. Oh, okay. Who is that again? Who's that actor again? Is that Matt? John Turturro. No, but uh, sorry, who's Bob Loblaw? Bob Loblaw is played by Scott Bayo, isn't it? Is it Scott Bayo? That's it, yeah. Yeah, um, because he actually takes... The funny thing on Arrested Development is that he takes over being the family's lawyer from which actor? Uh, Henry Winkler. Correct. So that in itself is a bit of a, a gag. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. Um, all right, let's uh, move on to TV. Now, uh, other uh, some notable TV shows, 1990, Twin Peaks. Boy, was there a lot of hype about that. Um, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air with uh, Will Smith, I think, in his first major role. That was Will Smith, wasn't it? Beverly Hills 90210 would become a very big sort of uh, uh, teeny, oh, no, young adult soap. Law and Order, uh, still going 30 odd years later, I think. Uh, I've gone for this one, which was uh, lovably quirky. I've got to say, I don't think it necessarily aged that well. Um, and I think Probably in in hindsight, that's because uh, there are a lot of shows that sprung up in its wake which were similar, but I think you've got to acknowledge its place as being a bit different for its time. And I'm speaking of Northern Exposure, uh, which ran for six seasons from 1990 to 95, 110 episodes. And it's about a young, neurotic uh, Jewish doctor who, um, by terms of his contract, has to go and practice for, I think, three years in a tiny little town called Sicily in Alaska. Um, and it becomes uh, about not just him, but the uh, lovable gang of eccentrics who um, populate the town of Sicily, all of whom you get to know 
very well over the ensuing uh, five or six years. Um, the doctor, Joel Fleischman, played by Rob Morrow. Um, oh, he was in that film After Hours, wasn't he? I think that was a pretty good film. And that had Henry Winkler too. Um, Morris Minifield, who is the sort of uh, big businessman, owns half the town, played by Barry Corbin. Uh, Maggie O'Connell, uh, played by Janine Turner. She is the pilot of the town who um, has an unfortunate um, curse, if you will, which is that all her uh, boyfriends end up dying in strange circumstances. And there's, of course, the obligatory sexual tension with Dr. Fleischman. Uh, Cynthia Geary plays Shelley Tambo, the impossibly beautiful young girl. Um, and John Corbett plays the uh, somewhat uh, enigmatic Chris on the radio, Chris Stevens. Uh, and there's uh, several other recurring characters. And I must say, look, uh, first couple of years, I, I did really enjoy this because it was different and it had, a, it had a nice feel to it. And it was just a... For its time, it was very different. You know, the characters weren't sort of so one-dimensional as they had been in a lot of, uh, what would you call it, comedy slash, not drama, but not all comedy either. But, you know, it was quirky and it was different and uh, you had empathy for the characters and the script writing was pretty good and the storylines were were different. Um, so it served its purpose for the time and it did do very well commercially. Northern Exposure. All right, what are you going with? There was a moose in that, wasn't there? Yes, in the opening titles, yep. Yep. I am going for a TV program that started in the United Kingdom in 1990, hugely influential and has been um, reworked and imitated right around the globe very successfully down under, and that is MasterChef. Ah, it started that long ago. Yeah, it started in 1990 in the United Kingdom. For the first 10 seasons, it was hosted by Lloyd Grossman. Grossman. Do you know Lloyd? Uh, no. He's American-born, sort of moved uh, to, the, uh, to the British Isles in his early to mid-20s. He's, I think you'd recognise him, bald chap, always signature look was a bow tie, has that sort of mid-Atlantic accent, or well-spoken Bostonian. He was also the member of a, a punk band that had a top 50 UK singles hit. Really? He was a guitarist. Okay. Which is a bit odd. Um, the name of the band actually was Jet Bronx and the Forbidden, and the single was Ain't Doing Nothing. But MasterChef, in its origins, was just three amateur chefs, and they would play off against each other with a guest judge, two judges. One was a celebrity, a guest celebrity and a guest chef judge, Lloyd Grossman hosting. And throughout the season, there would be knockouts, elimination until there was a champion crowned. First prize, a trophy. No money involved whatsoever. And then it sort of got taken over in 2000 by Greg Wallace and John Tarod. John Tarod being another another. Uh, transplanted Brit, this time from Australia. Used to have a, a pasta restaurant on Centre Road in Bentley, John Tarot. Okay. Went to England and became a, a TV celebrity. But the version that you see in the UK is 
sort of simpler. There is Master Chef Professionals as well. It's a simpler version than the one we have in Australia. In Australia, I think it again focuses a lot more on the individual, and it, they take sort of how many do they take to start off with? I don't know, fifteen or twenty, and you know, night in, night out, with some eliminations along the way, follow the fortunes of the same group. So it's a broader brush that, or a wider net that is cast by MasterChef UK, but it all started in 1990. Well, that is, uh, we talk about the start of reality TV, I guess it started a lot earlier than some of us think. Um, Yeah, that's exactly right. Reality food TV started there. Yeah, okay. No, good call, like that one. And of course, since the uh, alleged football season has started finally, we've now incorporated a... um, a third, uh, sorry, a fourth element to this, uh, vinyls, video, and VFL. Uh, though in this case, of course, 1990, we're talking AFL because it was officially the first year of the AFL. So uh, I'm going to uh, do the honourable thing, finally, and though it hurts to bring it up and talk about it, uh, some very painful memories. I think uh, for me, probably the highlight in a new sense from 1990, pretty hard to go past that long-awaited Collingwood Premiership, which broke a 32-year drought. Um, they uh, they crept up on Essendon finally, like, uh, like happens. Uh, Essendon out on top for most of a season, but not necessarily a super team, certainly beatable had their share of defeats during the year. They beat Collingwood uh, a first time at the MCG, beat them a second time narrowly by a goal in a classic out at Waverley in round 20, which was the first, uh, I think, first Saturday or Sunday afternoon game in Melbourne televised live into Melbourne because it was a sellout. Um, And then, of course, the fateful draw with West Coast in the qualifying final, um, which meant a replay the following week, after which the rules were changed. But uh, because Essendon had finished on top in the old Final Five system, that meant that Essendon went three weeks without playing a game. It didn't do them very well at all. They got smashed by Collingwood in the second semi, uh, butted up for another go in the grand final, but absolutely put away when it counted. Collingwood smashing the Collie Wobbles uh, with an emphatic performance. Tony Shaw, uh, captain and best on ground, winning the Norm Smith medal. Uh, great performances that day from Damien Monkhurst in the ruck. He played an absolute ripper. Craig Starsevich that day played a great game. Of course, the famous brawl at quarter time, seeing Gavin Brown knocked out, but he courageously returned to the fray and kicked a, an important goal. Essendon very undisciplined and uh, gave away far too many free kicks and 50-metre penalties. After kicking the first two goals of the game, could only manage another three goals for the entire game, leading to that famous joke, who kicked five goals in the 1990 grand final? Answer, Essendon. So I'm a bomber, Fanny, and uh, it was a particularly painful day for me. I had to go out in the ground. Um, my job was to ride on Essendon that day. I had to ghost a column by Simon Madden, who played a shocker. And uh, I didn't cover myself in glory either because I was walking up the race with Simon and a couple of Collingwood supporters hung over the top of the race to uh, give it to him despite the fact they just won a flag. And uh, I completely and utterly lost my shit and started climbing up the cyclone wire fence trying to punch them through the fence 
whilst Essendon officials tried to drag me down off the cyclone wire. This is about a week after I almost got arrested at the VFA Grand Final. Um, it was an eventful couple of weeks, finally, but I was 25. I played the innocence of youth. Anyway, a, gr- a great occasion for Collingwood. And, um, yeah, it got worse, too. I went to the Essendon dinner at the Hilton Hotel, which is a shocking affair. Couldn't get a taxi home and ended up walking two-thirds of the way home to East Malvern, which took about two hours. Not a very pleasant day at all. But, yeah, uh, full credit to the Pies. A very memorable day and uh, memorable campaign in the context of football history. What's your memory? Well, mine actually is a single game not involving St Kilda. And, you know, currently one of my best mates, big off, big offer. He's a mad Richmond supporter and you can imagine in recent years has been lording it over me. But not so when we went to the football on a, I think it was a Friday night. Oh, it was definitely yeah. a night game, maybe. Yeah, it was a Friday night. Round two? Round two at the MCG. Now, here's what I really enjoyed about this game. I'll, I'll go through the details of the game shortly, but we found it hard to get a parking spot and sort of had to park a fair way from the ground. Just as we parked the car, the game was starting. And Richmond kicked the first goal of the game. And I remember as he locked the car up, Offer was rubbing his hands with glee. Oh, that's good. You know when you go to a game and it's already started, you sort of run to see the scoreboard? Yeah. took us about 10 minutes to get, 10 or 12 minutes to get to the ground. And all we knew was that Richmond were leading one goal to nothing. Remember, this is round two. Hopes were still high. I've got to say, I did enjoy when we ran into the ground and saw the scoreboard 12 what? minutes into the first quarter. How many minutes? 12 minutes in. Yeah, what was it by then? Eight goals to one. <laughs> North Melbourne at quarter time led 13-3 to 2-1. 13? That's not a, bad, not a bad quarter of footy. My God. I've just uh, called the scores up, time. actually, yeah. Pardon? I've just called the scores up. Yeah, 18 goals to four at halftime, 24 to six at three-quarter time. Final score, North Melbourne 32-17 to nine goals, 14. And the major goal kickers? John Longmire kicked a dozen for North Melbourne. He'd go on to win the Coleman medal. Unfortunately, uh, only kicked a couple of goals in the last round and missed out on the ton. Correct. Um. Five goals to Peter German. Correct. Only three goals to Wayne Carey. Uh, three to John McCarthy. Yeah, that's right. And various others. Liam Pickering off the bench in one of his uh, early games for North Melbourne would have been his sixth or seventh game for the club. And in fact, another Pickering. Uh, another, another Pickering. Pick, another pick. Yeah, he did pretty well. Kicked four goals, four. But a bit of a standout performance. That's a... Hell of a thumping. What was it, 139 points? 141 points. 141 points. Not bad, eh? And I do remember, too, I think the Richmond supporters uh, stormed the dressing rooms after that game and uh, demanded the head of uh, the then coach, um, one Kevin Bartlett. Yeah. I I, I know that um, 
my my mate's eye and those around us were was directed fairly at one Richmond player. He was playing full forward for a while, just was not trying at all. He simply didn't put in was Phil Egan. Oh, really? Yeah, but, I, you know, singled out by a group of fans around me. I think he had a few mates. Okay. I look at that North Melbourne team, it was very strong. Very powerful team. Oh, they didn't miss. They yeah, we, didn't miss finals by a lot. Yeah, when you, I'm saying when you consider that they missed the finals, Allison, Carey, Crockett, German, Andrew Cracker, Matthew Larkin, Longmire, uh, McCarthy, a good footballer, Donna McDonald, Anthony Rock, Wayne Schwoss, Ross Smith, Anthony Stevens. Surprising they missed the finals. Yeah, I, I covered that game. I remember we interviewed uh, Longmire after the game, and he was practically in, in tears, and fair enough, too, because he kicked 2-8 uh, for the day from memory. Um, yes. Yeah. And uh, they... they That's Round 22. Yeah, correct. Lost to Collingwood, who would go on and win the flag. All right, uh, good memories, and that is 1990, the year in vinyl, video, TV, and the VFL slash AFL. All right, finally, I think it's time we finish this thing off with a good rant. On Footyology, the rant off. All right, Finey, hasn't been uh, any footy to speak of, so you might think uh, a little hard to get too fired up about football, but it's not, because there is something that's firing me up. I'm bloody pissed off about it, and I'd like to share it with you now in rant fashion. I'm looking forward to it, mate. Would you like to be counted in? I would like to be counted in. That was the reason for my pause. I thought it might have been. Here we go. Three, two, the rant king, Rowan. I pissed off with a football media finey. Yep, again. And now, even when they're doing something of which I approve. We don't have a season at the moment, and you could get some very healthy odds about us seeing one at all in 2020. So the AFL media department, the TV networks, and some radio stations are scrambling about for content. And what do you know? They've suddenly discovered an amazing new concept. It's called History. And for some of the decision makers at these organisations, it's been an absolute revelation. All of a sudden, old footy games are the new black. TV is replaying old home and away classics and grand finals. Radio stations are putting the videos on and calling them afresh. Newspapers are blogging them like they're happening live. It's quite inspired. But it also makes us devotees think, where the F have you hypocrites been the last 20 or so years? The media execs now crapping on for their lives about how great this little nostalgia exercise is are in many cases, finally, the same people who've spent most of the last few years telling us footy history isn't sexy, that the kids don't care, and that we need to understand the world has changed. Yep, well, it's changed all right, but not in the way they were envisaging. They're actually pretty lucky there's still some ex-players in the media at the moment old enough to even remember the games they're replaying. See, this is a thing which has worried me for a long time. The people who effectively curate the game's history now aren't the same people with the passion for or interest in it. And you can see that in the scant regard that they've shown for it. The proof of the pudding is the fact that when the name of game people bowed out of business, there was barely a thought offered to what might fill the void. 
the neglect is there in the way the AFL itself has access to all this rich history but keeps it seemingly perennially on the back burner. And it's there in the way many of the younger generation coming into the world of AFL media seemingly have little clue of or interest in what went on before they came aboard. I'll tell you what, Finey, I'm going to be pretty interested in how they're going to cope if this footballless year drags on for another six months or so. That's an awful lot of polls about which opposition player would you most likely to have at your club? Some have already resorted to death riding the clubs whose futures aren't that financially secure. That's pretty tiresome to begin with. It's going to be pretty bloody unbearable come September if we still haven't moved past round one. And that new AFL media strategy of going lifestyle is going to be interesting too. Seeing players won't be able to do wacky skateboard stunts with all the ramps closed or show off their new fashion labels given there's no one left to make any gear and no one with enough money to buy it anyway. You see, if this horrible situation proves anything funny, it might be that when you get rid of all the sideshows and the concocted controversies and all that extraneous noise and bullshit, which for years now has often made it seem like the game itself is an afterthought, we've still got 125-odd years of history behind us. It's real, it actually happened, and it's still worth celebrating. Who knows, maybe when this thing's over, talking about old grand finals and the game's greatest moments might actually be considered sexy. Well, maybe with a couple of skateboard stunts thrown in as well. Loved it. You know, I'm a big fan of football history, and that is perfectly put, my friend. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, we're going to find out who loves the game and who doesn't in the media sphere. I'll tell you that much. And... Um, yeah, looking forward to the wheat being sorted from the chaff in that regard. All right, are you ready to go? I'm ready, and mine couldn't be further away from football than, uh, well, Cardinia Park used to be from my home base down there in McKinnon. All right, well, prepare yourself. Three, two, one, rant. Of course, four rays out of the home in the last week or so and going into the future have been specifically selected and are for essential services. Well, I was given the task of going out and buying enough supplies to make sure that we kept the house clean and were able to do our chores around the house. And my first port of call was somewhere that, a type of store that I've been into occasionally, but never really immersed myself in. Well, I did last week. The old $2 shop, and what a fascinating walk it is. How do they do it? It's actually a cave of miracles. Everything is priced most reasonably. I wouldn't say $2, but we're talking at the very lowest end of the scale in terms of pricing. Yes, everything ends in 99 cents, but we're talking great savings. And how do they make those savings? I'll tell you how. They have an enormous range, every household item imaginable. From the kitchen, you can get your spoons, ladles, knives, strainers, drainers, you name it, thought of it, they've got it. Cleaning cupboard, they've got it covered from mops and brooms to swipers and wipers and everything you can imagine. All the liquids you need and all the sprays and everything that is in a normal cleaning cupboard. Bathroom accessories, the same. Every single household item covered and everyone made of such inferior quality that it's almost baffling. It's incredible that there are factories 
somewhere, probably China, that are able to reproduce every single household item in an inferior manner, all made to break on the second use. Sometimes I think it would be easier to actually make the superior product than engineer the inferior one. I've got a roller that's used to remove dog hair or, or cat hair from upholstery and from furniture. Normally, it's a simple item. It has sticky sheets on it that you peel off one by one. Somehow, they engineered it to make sure that when you peeled off a sheet, four sheets came off at once. That's clever. They must have an equivalent to quality control, crap control. Somebody that sits there and says, no, I'll make the crap version that only lasts one week. It's an amazing place, a $2 shop. Bargains, yes. Quality, no. But give them this. Engineered to fail with absolute brilliance. You've really got to check it out. <laughs> very good. It's a very uh, persuasive advertisement. And, uh, I must say, it reminds me of that phrase, and it tends to be more with uh, white goods and things, but the phrase built-in obsolescence uh, seems to be... That is exactly... This is, this is supersedes that. This is built-in failure. I, I don't know how they do it. <laughs> well, they, they got... Consistently, everything I've ever bought from there is... It works the first time, and by... Three days in, it's in pieces. Well, you know these are the same people who put together the show bags for the Royal Melbourne show. Yeah, well, there you go. I wondered where the fillers for those came. All right. Uh, no, very good. Like that a lot. Um, and uh, I just want to say, too, before we finish, um, apologies to our regular listeners. We know this is less than ideal circumstances. Um, Fanny and I cannot be present in the same place uh, because of these new social distancing, uh, not just that, but uh, just safety regulations with the studios we're using. So hence, one of us being in the studio, uh, the man who knows how to push the buttons, and the other man is in the home studio. Um, so we know the sound quality is less than ideal, but uh, hopefully the content's still okay. And you'll hang in there with us. And we know who will hang in there with us, Fanny, our loyal sponsors, who you're going to plug right now. The magnificent Andrews Hamburgers, best burgers, 81 years in, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, and Westport Properties, Nick Spartels, delivering the best in house builds and house renovations. And do not forget, you've got today and tomorrow your last opportunity to use the Grays Online voucher codes ROCO, R-O-C-O, or Finey, F-I-N-E-Y, to give you $30 off any item valued at $50 or more from the extensive Grays Online catalogue. Anything from $2 bottles of wine to $2 million cranes. Uh, don't think I'll be needing a crane soon, but a lot of other good stuff on there at Grays Online. So thanks again to all our sponsors. Thanks to our loyal listeners. Really appreciate your support in these tough times. Um, little slightly self-indulgent plug. Uh, if you don't follow me on Twitter, please uh, check out my top 20 albums of all time video series because I'm having a lot of fun doing it. And it's the sort of concept I'd like to keep going. So check that out. And check out Finey on Twitter too because he's back. He's back and this time he reckons he's serious about keeping it going. So let's see how honest we can keep him in his Twitter duties. Isn't that right, Mark? That's it. That's it. Finey, not Viney. 
at Viney, not Viney, and at Rowan underscore Connolly. Thanks, mate. Good to catch up, even if in virtual fashion. Uh, any parting words of wisdom? Stay safe, especially Rowan, with your circumstances a bit more um, immediate and serious than the average animal bear. Or, what was it? The average, whatever that saying was from the um, commercial. Just stay safe, son. Ah, thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, all of you people out there, stay safe as well. We've all got to dig in and help each other and show each other a fair bit of support. So uh, hang in there and we'll see you next week.